Today's scripture is Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles out to Matthew 7. If you're just joining us this morning, again, I want to welcome you. Uh, we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. And this morning we are finishing uh, the last section of what's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Matthew presents Jesus to us as the long-awaited king of heaven and earth in this book. And these are his words to his followers about what life looks like in his kingdom as part of his family. Um, This is what life looks like lived under the rule and reign of Jesus, a life of joyful submission to him. That's what he's been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount so far. And he concludes that sermon with one of the most vivid and probably famous illustrations that we have in the whole Gospel of Matthew, and that's the comparison of two houses, or or rather, two house builders. One who builds his house on the solid foundation of the rock, he digs deep down, he finds the bedrock, he, he builds the house on that, and another who builds his house on what's called shifting sand in this passage. Now, two houses that, that, you know, very likely looked pretty similar from the curb. You might not have noticed the difference if you had walked by and seen them. But only one of them is built wisely. Only one is built from a, on a foundation that's able to weather the greatest storms. The other is built by a fool, who will be shown to be a fool when his house comes crashing down in a storm. Now this passage is, it's the conclusion of the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's also the conclusion of the previous three paragraphs uh, that Pastor Bruce walked us through last week, each of which have made their point through a comparison of twos. If you'll think about last week, how many paths did we see? The narrow and the wide, two paths. Then there were two trees in 7, 15 through 20, and two claims before the Lord and his throne in 7.21 through 23. So there's these four comparisons of twos, and what's at stake in each of them in these final verses of Matthew 7 is, is much more than our reputation in terms of looking like a fool. What's at stake here is really life and death. It's the difference between entering through the narrow gate and finding life, or going through the wide gate and finding destruction. It's the difference between a tree that produces good fruit and one that's cut down and burned. It's the difference between being welcomed into Jesus' kingdom with wide open arms and hearing the dreadful words, I never knew you, 
Away from me, you evildoers. It's the difference between building on a foundation that's able to withstand God's judgment in the end and one that comes crashing down to oblivion. And the issue here in this passage is not just hearing Jesus' words. It's not just having read and, and studied the Sermon on the Mount together, but it's hearing and doing them. Notice the specific difference between the two builders. Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Contrast that with verse 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And so the question is not just hearing Jesus' words, not just learning about the sermon or even you know, memorizing it or something. The question is hearing and obeying, hearing and doing. And we've spent the last several months studying this sermon. And it's pretty easy to study something and to learn it well, even to memorize it, but not to do it. Uh, pastor and author Francis Chan illustrates this beautifully. He says, when I tell my daughter, go clean your room, she doesn't come back to me two hours later and say, I memorized what you said. Yeah. Go clean your room. I can even say it in Greek. Yeah. In fact, I'm having some of my friends over this week and we're going to study what it would look like if I were to go clean my room. Yeah. It, it doesn't work that way. There's a difference between hearing something and hearing and doing it. And so what will we do with Jesus' words in this sermon? How will we respond, both personally and as a congregation? It's the fool who only hears but does not obey to his own peril. The wise response to Jesus and his kingdom is wholehearted obedience. So this morning we're going to consider two questions together. What First, number one, what does obedience look like? How do we summarize the life that this sermon calls us to? But then second, why is it wise to obey Jesus? What's at stake in not just hearing, but hearing and doing? Why do we so often make little of obedience? And what is it that motivates us to obey? How is it even possible? Again, the wise response to Jesus and his kingdom is wholehearted obedience. And the thing about wisdom is, is that if you have eyes to see clearly the situation in front of you, it's not that hard to tell what the right decision is. So let's pray this morning for God to give us eyes to see clearly the real situation of this world, the real implications of our choices in life so as to live wisely in obedience to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do, we do pray just for that, for your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts, to see you for who you truly are, and to see this world for what it truly is, and how, what it means, what it looks like to, to honor you, to obey you, to follow you, and how we live every day. Not just Sundays, not just when others are watching, but every day, Lord to bring honor to you. God, would you penetrate our hearts this morning with your word? I pray, Lord, that where our hearts are 
comfortable and um, complacent in our sin, that you would make us very uncomfortable when we consider this passage, where our hearts are beat down and we are weary in our desire to obey, but, but weary from our failure, that you would bring comfort to us and give us the strength to follow you. So, Lord, minister to every heart, wherever it's at, minister these words to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The wise response to Jesus and his kingdom is wholehearted obedience. So the first question, what does that look like? What does a wholehearted obedience look like according to this sermon? Now, we can't go back through the last three months of sermons and, and flesh that out in all its detail. But if, if we had to summarize what we've seen in these chapters the last few months uh, of what it looks like to be to live under the reign and rule of Jesus, I think we can express it in three traits. First, it's devotion to the Father. It's a life of devotion to the Father. Second, it's dependence upon the Father through Jesus specifically. And then third, it's a life that displays the Father to the world and to each other. So a life of devotion to God, of dependence on Him through Jesus, and a life that then displays who He is and what He's like to each other and to the world. Begins with devotion to our Father in Heaven. If, if you think about the whole Sermon on the Mount, if there's one verse that maybe captures the ethical heart of this sermon, I think it's chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. There's one thing we're to be about as God's people in God's kingdom, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things that you spend your time worrying about, they'll be added to you. God will take care of that. We see the same emphasis of devotion to the Father when Jesus teaches us how to pray earlier in that chapter. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our tendency is to put ourselves first in life, to, to spend our time and our energy worrying about our own needs and our own desires, and then to put on a show for God and for others in order to try and secure them for ourselves. According to Christ, devotion to the Father means that I am not the center of the universe. And neither are you, but God is. He's worthy and he's trustworthy. And so our foremost concern in life under his kingdom is for his kingdom and his glory. Will God get the praise he deserves from how I live today? Will God's purposes be accomplished in whatever sphere of influence I have today? That's my burden. That's my priority devotion to the Lord. The rest is just details, and I can trust God to take care of those. So, devotion to the Father. Second, life in God's kingdom is marked by dependence on the Father through Jesus. One of the ongoing realizations of spending any time in this sermon is that left to ourselves, we cannot do this. Uh, you know, it's, it's a mixture of, of frustration and joy every time I sit down to study and, and prepare to preach this because I'm brought before my own sin time and time again, just realizing 
I'm not doing a very good job of these things. I can't do this. But that's part of the point of the sermon, I think. It is to come to the end of ourselves, and, and, and which doesn't excuse us from obeying, but rather reminds us of whom we must trust in order to obey. It reminds us of our utter and desperate need for Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount was given to a broken people. That's how it begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The, 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 the poor in self, those who are bankrupt in and of themselves, for theirs is the kingdom of God, of heaven. The kind of people who belong to God's kingdom are those who know they shouldn't be there, but for Jesus. The kind of people who belong to God's kingdom are those who know they shouldn't be there, but for Jesus and what he's done for us. He's the one who fulfills all the Old Testament law and prophets on our behalf. He's the son and the servant that Adam failed to be, that that ancient Israel failed to be, that you and I failed to be. Through faith in him, we're able to be reconciled to God, forgiven of our sins, adopted into his family, into his kingdom, so that we might serve him in the power of his Holy Spirit. So we need to depend on the Father in order to live this life. We can't do it in and of ourselves. And he is a loving, heavenly Father. What he commands, he will provide. If he asks us to do something, he's going to give us the grace and the strength to do it through Jesus. So kingdom living means depending on the Father through Jesus. So it's marked by devotion to the Father. It's marked by dependence on him, and third, it's marked by displaying the Father to each other and to the world. So, if we think about all the different things that, that we've seen about life in this kingdom, so things like meekness and mercy, or purity and, and perseverance, forgiveness, and living at peace with each other, honoring the holiness of marriage and sex, saying what we mean and doing what we say, loving our enemies. Trusting and treasuring God above everything else. Treating others with humility and discernment. Depending on the Father and following the narrow way of the gospel of Jesus. We think about all that we've seen about what this life entails according to Christ. The reason he calls us to live this way and how we relate to God and how we relate to each other is that's, it's because that's how God interacts with us in holiness in mercy. And if we belong to him, people should notice the family resemblance in how we go about our lives. As Jesus says in 5.16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. See, he gets the glory for a life that reflects him. That means that our actions and our words and the decisions we make are to reflect that holiness, that beauty, that love of the Father. People, when they see how we live our lives, if we are members of God's family, part of his kingdom, when people see how we live our lives, they should be able to understand, oh, that's what God's like. That, that's, that's how God treats people. Well, that's, that's our job. Now, again, we drop the ball so often, but that's... 
the life of obedience God calls us to. It means that if something I do or say is untrue of God's character or contrary to his purposes or or against God's word, then I will avoid doing it or saying it. That's also what obedience means. It means what I do say and do is going to honor God as king. It's going to show others what he's like. It's going to help people understand the truth and the beauty of who Jesus is, what he's done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. So that's the life of obedience that God calls us to in a nutshell. That's what it means to walk according to this sermon. Devotion to the Father. Dependence upon the Father. So that we can display his holiness, his beauty, and his love. And according to these final verses in chapter 7, we are wise to obey this. We are wise to live that way. But what's at stake in our obedience? Why is it wise? You know, why not just carry on, you know, with one foot in this world and one foot in the other and, and, and kind of, you know, get the most out of the best or most out of both worlds? Why obey Jesus with a whole heart? First, obedience is wise because Jesus really is king. And that's, that's probably the biggest reason this sermon gives us. Jesus really is king. He really does have authority over creation, which includes jurisdiction over the direction of our lives. When we introduced the sermon several months ago, we noted how the whole thing is framed to highlight Jesus' authority. That's how it starts. That's how it ends. That The crowd responds just a couple verses after our passage at 7, 28, and 29. Uh, they responded when he finished these sayings, saying that you know, they were amazed at the teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Jesus really does have authority. Living out the Sermon on the Mount means bowing the knee to Jesus' authority. But for some of us, all this talk about obedience uh, and keeping God's commands honestly makes us a little bit suspicious. Uh, Which is not surprising given that most of our culture has a pretty big issue with the idea of authority. Uh, You know, we don't like it. Most of us were raised to suspect authority or even just flat out disrespect it. We've been raised to be an authority to ourselves, and anybody who claims some sort of jurisdiction over us is suspect. Since obedience begins by recognizing the authority of someone, talk about obedience seems like there's some sort of secret power play at hand. Somebody's looking for a way to kind of come in and take advantage of us, or else deprive us of something good in life that we would otherwise like to have and should have and have the right to have, but but this person in their authority wants to keep us away from that. Uh, Moreover, the the talk of obedience seems to confirm for some of us what we've always feared or long suspected to be the case, that Christianity is just this bunch of outdated rules kept by people who don't like to have fun and don't want you to have fun either. And so, how dare Jesus tell us how to live? What right does he have? Now, to be honest, 
our suspicion toward authority is somewhat understandable because authority is often abused. I mean, most of the news stories today uh, about political things are all about the question of whether authority is being abused. Authority is abused in the church, sadly, in our own families, in our own workplaces. But the existence and exercise of authority is not oppressive in and of itself. And we need to understand that. In fact, authority can actually be quite loving. Uh, We just returned from Nebraska a week ago uh, from visiting family there. And on our return trip, we had a three-hour layover in St. Louis. Um, And Eva, who turns two today, if you can believe that, uh, she decided it would be fun to try and see how far away from us she could sneak off for about three hours straight. Now, as a parent, I have the authority to tell her no and to go get her and, if need be, to discipline her to help her do that. Am I restricting her behavior? Yes, because she needs it. Am I doing that so that I can crush her individualism? No. I'm doing it because I love her. I'm exercising my authority as a parent out of love and the good of my child. In fact, if I didn't exercise that authority and let her wander off on the airport wherever she wanted, I'd probably be arrested for that, for failing to exercise my authority as a parent. So authority in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not intrinsically oppressive. It can actually be quite loving and all the more so when it's executed by our King and our Savior who alone is wise enough and loving enough to restore this broken world and everything that's wrong with it and to reconcile sinners to his Father who alone has the authority and love to tell us how to live for our own good and for his glory. Jesus really is king. All authority in heaven and on earth really has been given to him, which means he really is worthy of our wholehearted obedience. Again, it's not just what we do Sunday morning or when our our church friends are watching us. It's all of life. It's another thing we've seen throughout this sermon Obedience is not something that you just put on a mask and hangs out at the surface. It comes from the heart, from a heart devoted to and changed by Jesus. And unlike the authority that we, the people, grant our government to rule on our behalf, Jesus receives his authority from his Father in heaven, which means that whether we recognize his authority or not, he still has it. And we will still answer to him. Jesus really is king. And so it really is wise to obey him. That's the first reason of why it's wise to obey Christ. The second, it's wise to obey Jesus because there really is a coming judgment. It's wise to obey Jesus because there really is a coming judgment. As king, Jesus is also a judge. We see that in Matthew 25. Uh, We see it elsewhere, too. He will make right all that's wrong in this world, and he will bring all wrongdoers to justice. Again, that's not exactly a popular subject 
people don't like to hear or talk about judgment. And to be honest, one of the most common perceptions that people have of the church is that we're too judgmental. But again, if we're honest, there is in all of us a desire for wrongdoers to be punished. Especially when they do wrong against us. There's, there's an acknowledgement in our hearts that this is not the way it's supposed to work. People are not supposed to be treated this way. And we want to see justice happen. We want to see things made right. And if they're not willing to be made right, we want to see wrongdoers punished. And if, if that's true at this level, on a personal level, why would it not be true at a cosmic level? Where God created this world and rules it, and we've rebelled against him. One of the most popular shows on television today is called Breaking Bad. Uh, it's a rather grim and violent show. Uh, it's about a high school chemistry teacher who discovers he has terminal lung cancer, and so he decides to uh, cook meth and sell it in order to build a nest egg for his pregnant wife and, and, and child. And what's interesting about this show is that unlike so many shows that depict evil or wrongdoing with no consequences, you think how many times you watch a show and you find yourself rooting for the bad guy, you know, the thief, so that he can get away, or, or rejoicing that the adulterer has found love finally in, in someone else. And so many shows depict evil and wrongdoing without consequences. In contrast to that, the, author, the writer, uh, Vince Gilligan, says, if there's a a larger lesson to Breaking Bad, it's that actions have consequences. So throughout, evil actually comes back on the characters who commit it. Uh, Gilligan is not a Christian, but he says, I find atheism just as hard to get my head around as I find fundamental Christianity. Because if there's no such thing as cosmic justice, what's the point of being good? That's the one thing no one has ever explained to me. Why shouldn't I go rob a bank, especially if I'm smart enough to get away with it? What's stopping me? I want to believe there's a heaven, he says, but I can't not believe that there's a hell. Isn't that interesting? God's judgment is real because evil is real and it must be dealt with by a holy God. We know that in our hearts, even if we don't like to acknowledge it. But Christianity is not primarily a message about judgment, but about how to be rescued from the judgment we're already under because of our sin and rebellion against God. Christianity is a message of hope, of a world made new, the world as it was meant to be. That's why it's good news, because there is hope. There's not just bad news, there's good news of how to escape and be rescued from the bad news. There's renewal. But we serve no one if we deny or ignore the very real danger of judgment for those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ. We're not loving them or doing them any favors by ignoring that. Where I grew up in the Midwest, tornado warnings were a relatively common occurrence. My hometown of Aurora uh, was hit twice in the last, twice in two years recently, a few years ago, on the outskirts of town. And the second tornado destroyed the home 
of the man that my brother-in-law was working for at the time. He was getting ready for bed. They weren't watching TV. They never heard a siren. Uh, He happened to glance out his front door when he was going to turn the light off and see several storm-chasing vehicles in his driveway and looked and saw the tornado coming, grabbed his children out of bed upstairs, raced down to the cellar no sooner than the tornado ripped the roof off their room. So you saw the pictures. You see from a distance, there's their bedroom. No wall, no roof. There's their beds. By God's grace, no one was injured. But when the danger is real, don't you want to be warned? You know? And don't you want to warn others of it? If you've ever heard a tornado siren, it is an oppressive sound. But it is joy to the ears of those whose lives it saves. So it is that Jesus loves us by warning us of the storm that is coming and God's judgment at the end. And that's what this passage is ultimately warning us against. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the common metaphors or images used to illustrate God's judgment in the end is that of a storm. And the previous three paragraphs have already been talking about this coming judgment, the destruction, the fire, being shut out from the kingdom. And so when we read about the wise man's house in verse 25, The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And then we compare that to what happens to the fool in in verse 27. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. What's at stake here is not merely surviving the storms of life, but surviving final judgment before God's throne because of our sin. And the difference here between being rescued from judgment and facing it is whether or not we obey Jesus' words. Now, that sounds funny to some of us. Uh, We know from the rest of Scripture, in fact, from elsewhere in this sermon, salvation is not on the basis of our own obedience or works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus. It's it's what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection, not what we do for God that makes the difference, that has the power to save us. But the obedience that Jesus is talking about here is not some sort of merit-earning self-salvation program where we just try hard enough to do more good than bad and make it up to God for failing and just hope beyond hope that maybe he'll cancel our sin in the end and, and overlook it and let us in. That's not what he's talking about. The obedience he describes here is necessary because it's the fruit of a life that has been saved by Jesus and that is indwelled by his Holy Spirit. We come to God just as we are, but he doesn't leave us just as we are. He changes our lives by the Spirit. He conforms us to his word so that we live and look more and more like him. Our obedience is fruit and evidence of that change of God in our life, which means if, if, if we do not care whether or not we obey God, 
then there's no evidence that we actually know God. That's what Jesus is saying here. If obedience doesn't matter, then there's no confidence before God in the end. It is true what God, what Paul says in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. You have confidence before the Father in the end. But it is also true that as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If, if the faith we have in Jesus isn't bearing forth in a life of obedience that grows and grows, we're not talking about perfection, but growing obedience, then we do we really have that kind of faith? Or, or as Jesus puts it in Matthew 7, you will recognize them by their fruits. God's spirit is not idle in our hearts. God's word is not idle. It's powerful. And we are wise to obey him. We're wise to obey him because judgment really is coming. And to ignore that warning and and to go on saying, yeah, I get that Jesus, yeah, he's king, whatever. I want to do this. To ignore that warning is as foolish as building your house on the beach right in front of the, the surf. It's not going to be there tomorrow morning. So obedience is wise because Jesus really is king. uh, Because there really is a coming judgment. And third, obedience is wise because Jesus really is all that we need. He really is all that we need. So why not follow him? I've mentioned this throughout the series Uh, But this passage has the same effect that so many other parts of the Sermon on the Mount have. To bring us once again before the reality of our own sin and insufficiency before the throne. I mean, you read that warning we just read. And you think, (laughs) who am I to stand before God? Now, some of us have a hard time with obedience, not because... We're suspicious of authority or, or because we were possessive of our own kingdom and we want to keep doing things our own way. Some of us have a hard time with obedience because we're discouraged from our own failure. We agree that Jesus is king. We agree that he deserves all of our life, un, unreserved obedience. And yet we are frustrated by our constant failure to do it. To give it to him. We can't figure out how. We we find ourselves stuck in in sinful patterns of thinking or sinful patterns of living. We're tired and discouraged. We want to obey. We don't know how. We feel like we're never going to measure up. That that God really would be completely justified if he just struck me down right now. We want to obey. But we're, we're weary. And we don't know how. And if that's you, that's exactly where you need to be in order to obey this sermon. At the end of yourself, where you can trust in Jesus, who is everything that you need. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I want you, I want all of us to remember that God does not ask of you anything that he himself does not provide. The obedience that he calls us to 
is an obedience that can come only from our union with Jesus Christ. Only from what God can do and is doing in us to change our hearts to make us more like him. In giving us Jesus, God really has given us everything that we need. Again, who can stand in the coming judgment? Which, which one of us, in and of ourselves, could do that? Only Jesus can stand. And those who are covered by him. Because he already took the judgment we deserve on himself on the cross. Who can supply all that our hearts are made to long for? The things that we so often look for in the world that tempt us to move away from God so that we can find some sort of satisfaction. Who can supply that? Only Jesus. All other treasures will let us down. Only Jesus is the greatest treasure that this world affords. Who can strengthen us amid this fallen world and in the midst of our, the weakness of our flesh uh, to walk with devotion to the Father? with dependence on him to display his glory, only Jesus, who gives us life and who changes our lives, conforming them to his word through the Holy Spirit. Jesus really is enough. And I hope that, again, there's so many takeaways from the Sermon on the Mount, but I hope if, if there's one thing we remember of what life under God's reign means. It means that Jesus really is king and he really is enough. And that life lived in dependence on him and for the sake of his glory is a life that is not wasted. In fact, it's the only life worth living. What will we do with the words that we've heard in this sermon? Will our lives, or will Westgate, be any different for having studied the Sermon on the Mount? We're called to obey with a wholehearted devotion, complete dependence, in order to display his glory, and we will be wise to do so. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for the love that you have for us that you tell us about in your word. Thank you for your son who expresses that love, who embodies that love, who brings it to bear on our lives through the cross and resurrection. Thank you for your spirit who applies it to us. Lord, we pray that Westgate would be a place people where your name is honored, where people see in us what you're like in your love and your mercy, in your holiness, but not a judgmental, stuck-uppishness, in a holiness that takes you and your words seriously, but in a mercy that wants to help others take you and your words seriously and wants to help them find the gift that only Jesus can give us. That's reconciliation with you. Lord, may we be marked by our relationship with you. May we be marked by obedience, joyful obedience and satisfaction in Jesus. In your name, amen.